frazzled people in Kmart and Woolies and Coles and doing all that good stuff. Well, one of my favourite things this time of year is that in the shops you'll just hear carols. They're all the different carols and you'll hear Jesus being sung in the middle of Kmart, in the middle of Coles and Woolies and Westfields. And I just think that's amazing. I love the fact that that atmosphere, along with, you know, Paul McCartney and, you know, Mariah Carey and, you know, it's in the mix there. But, but it's the only time of year that you'll hear that kind of music in our culture, just around and about. So I love that. And what you'll often hear... Um, in the songs and usually in the carols by candlelight, you'll see it, is Pastor Mark's favourite carol, if you can guess it, it's Oh Holy Night. Yes, is that anybody's favourite carol here this morning? Hands up, that's your favourite one. Yes, there we go. Jesse likes it. And... Uh, <coughs> It's, it's, that, it's that great one, isn't it, where, you know, it's such, it's such a build and it's a favourite of all the divas and the crooners because it's got this big moment and then you're always like, will they nail it? Will they, will they go for it? And then when they do, you're like, oh, you feel so good for them. And if they don't, you're like, oh, well, never mind. It's a really hard song. I couldn't sing it like that. So I love hearing that song. And um, we're actually going to look at the words together today. Uh, we're not going to sing it. I, I could have got Faith to sing it because Faith would nail it. But, um, but we're just going to have a look at the words. Because I think sometimes when you sing it, you don't always realize what you're singing, hey? You just sing it. But let's have a look. Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. It's a strong start. Can we agree? Pretty good. I love this line, my favorite line. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks, that makes my British heart very happy like you. <laughs> yonder breaks, that's what we do. A new and glorious morn, fall on your knees. Amazing. Hear the angel voices, O night divine, O night when Christ was born. And then is this anybody's favorite verse, this third one here? Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. That's particularly pertinent this Christmas time, hey, with all the different things that are going on in the world. Sweet hymns of joy in grateful chorus raise we. Let all within us praise his holy name. And if you're not feeling something when you're singing this and you get to this point, you, you know, you want to check your pulse. Because at this point, we should be like, fall on your knees and it's great. And it's beautiful. And I particularly love singing it Christmas Eve because it's, you know, it's, it's Christmas Eve. It's the, you know, the night when Christ was born. And so I want you to, as we just read that, imagine what kind of person writes a song like that. What kind of person writes these lyrics that have been around since the 1800s that still move us, that still bring a tear to our eye when it's sung really well? What kind of person pens such a truth-filled, gospel-centered, Jesus-honoring set of words? What's your expectation of the author? If we're going to paint a picture of them in our mind, what kind of person would they be? Someone who reads their Bible? somebody who prays, somebody in awe of the birth of Jesus. You kind of get that sense, don't you? This person's come to the account and been like, wow, this night when Christ was born, amazing. Somebody overcome with joy and thankfulness as they read the account. Somebody wanting to write a song that just expresses truth that's going to stand the test of time through generations. Have you got a picture in your mind of the kind of person that you think might have written this song? Well, spoiler alert, here it comes. Here's the actual circumstances around 
the writing of O Holy Night. In 1843, a church had had an organ renovation, which in that time was the equivalent of them getting a new LED screen. So that was like a real big deal, a massive, massive outlay, big expense, you know, big showy thing that was happening. And because they were so excited about their renovated organ, the priests wanted um, a poem to commemorate the new organ. And so he asked a guy called Placide Capot. I'm hoping I've said that he's French. And the, he asked him, he was a native of the town, and said, Placide, can you write a poem, please? Because the new organ is so amazing. We just need to get this down in words, how awesome this organ is. And so he writes the poem, O Holy Night. He reads the accounts of Matthew and Luke, and he writes this. And then he asks his friend, who's called Adolphe Adam, who was the, the composer who wrote Giselle, the opera, so, you know, really decent musical chops. And he, he writes the tune, he composes the tune that we now sing today, which is why it's such a cracker of a tune, because this person writes operas, and he wrote this. So that's why we're still singing it hundreds of years later. But the problem was, so the, they, they then say the poem and sing the poem, and it's like this massive hit in all the French churches. And it just spreads around France, and everyone loves it, because, you know, it's, it's just great. It's a great song, it's great words, it's amazing. The only problem was, is that Placide Capot was an atheist. And a socialist, which is probably worse in France, and because of that, church eldership were like, well, we can't have this lovely poem that's been written by an atheist and a socialist atheist at that. We can't have that being sung in every church around France. So now it's banned and nobody's allowed to sing it. So they banned it in France, but people obviously still loved the song and still sang it in pubs and different places. And so it gets picked up by this guy called John Sullivan Dwight, who was an American who was in France at the time. And he's impacted by it. And so he then translates it from French into English. And because he was an abolitionist at the time of the Civil War, he adds our third verse. This is, this is he, he tweaked it. And he puts in, for the slave is our brother, change shall he break and oppression. That's his addition to the song. And then he takes that to America and puts it out to his, he's like a, like a music reviewer. And he puts that out. And at the time of the Civil War, so if you weren't a Confederate, you loved this song. This was a great song because it's kind of, it's Christmassy. It's got this banging tune from this amazing composer. And it's also helping you, you know, really solidify and, and express what it is that you're fighting for. What people, thousands and thousands of people are losing their lives for. So that the, because the slave is our brother, that's the crux basically of the whole civil war that's happening in America. So, now that you know that, I'm guessing nobody had French socialist atheist writing a poem for an organ in France on your bingo card of what you thought the author of this song was going to be like. Did anybody have that? Unless you've heard the story before, did nobody had that on their bingo card, hey? We were like, Christian, loves Jesus, in awe, reads his Bible, prays. And it's like, no, 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 no. Atheist. Amazing. What are you experiencing now? Surprise? Not what you expected? Maybe a bit left field? Intrigued? A bit puzzled? Confused? Maybe even a bit let down? 
Maybe you're like, oh, sorry. <laughs> you kind of ruined this uh, carol for me when I hear it in the shops now. We're like, it's an atheist that sang this. Don't, don't go French on them. Be like, I will never sing this song again because there's truth in it. There's a gap between what you anticipated, what you expected, what you imagined, and the reality of how it's actually happened. And that uncomfortable little gap is where we're going to sit today as we come to the biblical account of the birth of Jesus. All of those feelings of surprise, oh, that's not quite what I expected. Gosh, that's a bit left field. I didn't think about that. I'm a bit intrigued, puzzled, confused, even let down. You'll find all of those feelings if you come to the account in Matthew and Luke. And we find that difficult because if you've been in church any length of time, you'll have heard these scriptures probably even hundreds of times. Even if you're new to faith or you have no faith at all in the room today, you'll have heard some of these scriptures said and read out loud and the cows by candlelight and different things. And so it's difficult when we have something that is so familiar to us that we come at it with that familiarity. We don't often see it for how it truly is. But this morning, I'm hoping that we can come afresh to the biblical account and we can kind of put aside how we think it is and come to it afresh this morning and maybe sit in that uncomfortable puzzle a little bit. Matthew's, because it's, 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 this, it's this stunning account. When we come at it fresh, when we come at it and hear it, maybe the way that the first listeners did and the first people experienced it, it's an absolutely stunning account. It's, it's a really interesting account of what's happening. Matthew's account is based off eyewitnesses. So he's gone, and Luke as well has gone and made a careful record of what people said happened, and they've written it down for us. It contains real people, real places, and those places still exist. It's not made up. It's not a story. So I'm not going to use the words a Christmas story today because it's not, it's not a story in the sense of our culture of a fairy tale. It's true. It's a, it's a biblical account. That does, it's not scientific. It's not, that's not its aim. But it is true, and it is filled with truth. Matthew's audience is Jewish, so we're going to concentrate our time together in Matthew today. Now, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. That's who he's writing the letter to. And that is really important for us because Matthew's purpose in writing the whole gospel is to say to his people who are reading his gospel, Jesus is the new Moses. If we're going to kind of sum up Matthew, that's, that's his driving point is you've been looking for a new Moses. Good. The person you're looking for is Jesus. That's Matthew's whole point. You've been looking for a deliverer. That person is Jesus. And he continually tries to show that, explain that, illustrate that. And, and if you read Matthew through that lens, you'll be a little bit closer to Matthew's intent. And so, Matthew, if you're going to go and read it, and I would encourage you to do that this week, Matthew 1 starts with this genealogy, which, you know, hands up if you've ever, you've gotten to that bit and you've been like, we'll just skip that bit and we'll kind of get, get to the interesting bit and be like, begat, 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 and was this and was that and was who and then blah, blah, blah. And we're like, yeah, whatever, I don't understand. And we're like, you know, get through to the, you know, skip the entree, go to the mains. And because we find genealogies boring, and, and not very interesting, and it's just lots of reading. But for a Jewish person, they're like on the edge of their seats. This is like, 
What a cracking start. It's like, you know, you know when you watch a film and it's like, bam, action straight away and you're like, whoa, I was like expecting a bit of leading. That's what Matthew's doing. He's like, name, 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 name. Here we go. And some more names, 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 names. And so Matthew's Jewish audience are like, whoa, this is like gripping for them right at the start. And he's, he's doing that because he's writing specifically to these people. And he gives them basically like a a short version of Israel's history. If we can stick the next slide up for me. There we go. Beautiful. And so he splits it into six sets of seven. So he goes from Abraham to David. So two lots of seven there. David to the exile. It's called Babylon in um, Matthew, seven, seven. And then the exile. And then we hit where Jesus' part comes in. Then at the end it says, So all the generations for Abraham to David were 14 generations, two sets of seven. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14, two sets of seven. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations, two sets of seven. And you're like, lovely. Matthew liked round numbers. He liked primes. He's a mathematician. No, he's not. What he's doing is he's saying perfection, 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 perfection. And then he's like, dot, dot, dot. So he's saying There's this perfection that runs through our history. It's amazing. Look at these sets of seven that just pop up in our history. And we've got six sets of seven. And and then he's like, and then what? And so he's leading his readers on to be like, what is coming after all this perfection? And then enter stage left, Jesus. It immediately then says, and this is the account. So Matthew's doing this beautiful setup where he's like, this is amazing. Look at all our history. And Jesus, he's kind of bringing, setting up this big expectation and then bringing them to Jesus. Now, scientifically, there are more than 42 generations between Abraham and Jesus. Of course, there are. But Matthew's point is not to do a complete ancestry.com. His point is to show salvation history is traced through the Israel story, through the nation's story. And so he, the kind of the subtitles for us as, as kind of Western people is perfection is coming. If he could write it that way, if we we're going to sum up this a little bit, he's, he's leading them on to say perfection is coming. We've had this, this thread that's through our whole history. Look, here it is, and a seven, and another seven, and another seven. And what could make the seventh seven? What could be so perfect? And then we get into, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. So they're immediately like, oh, this is a left turn. I am puzzled. I am confused. I am intrigued. This is not what I was expecting. I'm actually a little let down because I, I know a little bit about Jesus and I didn't think this was going to be where you're leading me into the perfection of perfection. So Matthew systematically wants to prove, even from the very start of his account, Jesus is who we've been waiting for, guys. It's not how we expected it to be. It's not on your Messiah bingo card. He's saying to the Israelites, you have this expectation of how this is going to look, but none of you thought it would come in this way. And so he's continually helping them to see, this is Jesus. This is who we've been waiting for. This is the deliverer. This is the new Moses. He's the perfection of perfection. And here's how he came to earth. 
And it starts like this. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. There's a few interesting, excuse me, there's a few interesting parts within this here. The first thing I want us to just notice that we just really quickly gloss over often is the character of Joseph here. We have a comment from Matthew on Joseph's character. It says that Joseph was a just man. Have you ever thought about that? That that's really one of the only things that we know about Joseph. We don't know an awful lot about him, but the Bible tells us he was a just man. And Joseph, if we were to think about his experience of the Christmas story, because obviously he doesn't know he's in the Christmas story, it's just his life in the Christmas account. He's like, what is happening to my life? I did not know what was going on here. If we were to think about his feelings and his emotions as he walks through this account, he would definitely have feelings of surprise. This is not what I expected. This is definitely left field. We're not even in a field. We're like over the mountain, down a river. We're in a different country to where I thought I was going to be right now. Intrigued, puzzled, definitely confused, definitely let down. We could probably add in there frustrated, hurt, embarrassed, angry. And... How he thought his betrothal was going to go is not how it went in any way. How he imagined his life to go was, was just such a left turn of how he thought this was going to go. And it's, we kind of need to know just a, a smidge about Jewish betrothal. So it's not engagement like we have where you know we date somebody and then we discover and we work out that yes this is a person I'm going to choose to be with and so we give them a ring and then we plan the wedding and then we get married and then we consummate the marriage and that's how we do it in our western culture but in Jewish culture you were given in marriage and you were betrothed but so you hadn't come together you hadn't consummated the marriage so the bridegroom before as the betrothal happens then the bridegroom goes away and then he prepares a place for the bride so if you know your new testament there's there's all that you know about Jesus going away and preparing a place for us that's that's Jesus as the bridegroom going and preparing a place for us and the bridegroom has to build an, uh, like a, another house on top of his mum and dad's house and that's where he's basically building a place for his wife to be. Now, they've not come together and consummated the marriage, but they are married in Jewish eyes. They are as married as married can be, as married as the day after they've consummated the marriage. It's the same thing. So it's not like you wouldn't break a betrothal off. You are married. And so Joseph is married. 
And that's why it's such a huge thing for him and for Mary. It's, this, it's just so, so scandalous what's happening to them. And so he has this a really unusual betrothal experience because his betrothed comes to him and says, I am pregnant and it's by the Holy Spirit. I just... I just want to sit, you know, when we're doing the relationship panel, I really hope there's a relationship panel in heaven where we just get, you know, half an hour with Mary and Joseph and go, what, please tell us that conversation. How did that go? And we get to see it. It would just be so fascinating to know. But Joseph's betrothed is, is growing evidence to the rest of the world's eyes of her infidelity. That's how it looks to everybody else. Remember, they don't know what's going on. And even if they do, they don't believe them. Who's believing Mary? Yeah, right, Mary. Yeah, an angel came. Yeah, right. And you're carrying the Son of God. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's a really unique excuse that we're bringing to the table here. Of all the excuses that we thought might be put on the table for you just sleeping around or worse, being raped. Like, this is like, you know, that's a really unique out-of-the-box kind of thinking from Mary. It's what everybody else would have been thinking about this. But even before the angel comes to Joseph, we get an insight into his character. He's a just man. He's choosing not to purge his social shame through legal channels, which was absolutely his right to do. But actually, he's even before the angel comes, he's choosing to show a stunning level of grace and mercy towards Mary that was completely unwarranted in the situation. And the angel interrupts those plans. But I want to show you what Joseph's plans were based on. And we're going to go to Deuteronomy for this. And it says this in Deuteronomy. Here we are. So this is what Joseph's entitled to do. So if any man takes a wife and goes into her, this is on the wedding night, they're talking about consummating the wedding night, and goes into her and then hates her and accuses her of misconduct and brings a bad name upon her, saying, I took this woman and when I came near her, I did not find in her evidence of virginity. Then shall the father of the young woman and her mother shall take and bring out the evidence of her virginity to the elders of the city in the gate. So that would have been a cloth that was on the marriage bed, which should have had blood on it, which would have been evidence of the girl being a virgin. So a bit gross, but that's what it is. So, so just be grateful, Janine. This was not part of the wedding prep that you had to sort out recently. And no mums and dads have to do this now. That would have been awesome. So, the father of the young woman shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man to marry and he hates her. That's a bad statement. And behold, he has accused her of misconduct, saying, I did not find in your daughter evidence of virginity. And yet, this is the evidence of my daughter's virginity, because he's a good dad. And they shall spread the cloak before the elders of the city. Very embarrassing, but next slide. The elders of that city shall take the man and whip him. So this guy's lied. He's, he's been betrothed. He then decided he didn't like his wife. He sleeps with her and then says, she's not a virgin. And the mom and dad would go, no, she definitely is. Look, here's the evidence. And because he's lied about that, he gets whipped. They fine him 100 shekels of silver, give them to the father of the young woman, that's not very fair, but there we go. Because he has brought a bad name upon a virgin of Israel, and she shall be his wife, and he may not divorce her all his days. That's a stunning move forward for women's rights at this time. Because 
in any other culture, he would just say, well, I don't like her. That's it, divorce her, and then she's left destitute, and she is, she's, she's done socially for the rest of her life. And so the, the law here is moving women's rights massively forward by saying, no, you can't do that. You've taken her as your wife. She's your responsibility. You cannot divorce her. You must look after her. And so this is a huge move forward. Still not far enough, but a massive move forward for the time. Next slide. Here's where Joseph sits. But if the thing is true, that evidence of virginity was not found in the young woman, Mary, evidence of virginity, evidence of, of not virginity, not, is now growing in Mary. Very obvious evidence. It's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger as the nine months go on. Then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house, and the men of her city shall stone her to death with stones because she's done an outrageous thing in Israel by whoring in her father's house. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Mary, to her society has been whoring in her father's house and is evil in the midst of her community. That's what the law pronounces over Mary. That's how serious this is. And Joseph has every right to take her and, and say, well, there's very obvious evidence that she's not a virgin because he would be believed. And he has every right to take her and her be stoned. And yet, Matthew tells us Joseph is a just man, and he's not going to do that. He's going to divorce her quietly. He wants to preserve her life. He wants to, to work this out in a way that brings the least amount of pain and discomfort and shame upon him and Mary and the whole situation. This whole family is involved in this for everybody. And Matthew, in this, he reaffirms Joseph's standing. He says to him that you are a son of David. When the angel comes, he says, son of David. And that's important for Matthew's readers because Jesus has to come. The Messiah has to come through the house of David. And so he's giving us a little nod. Everything's legit. Everything's okay. The story's starting very unusually, I know, but it's coming through the house of David. Salvation history. Matthew says, Joseph qualifies. Luke tells us Mary qualifies. She's also in the house of David. And then comes this interesting little bit where the angel says, don't be afraid. I think often we trip over that bit because when angels show up in the Bible, they always say, don't be afraid, right? Which is how you know angels are not cherubs in our depiction of angels. Because no, when angels show up, people don't go, oh, that's really cute. When angels show up, people are terrified. They fall on their face. They fall over. They're like, they're like oh, my goodness. And so angels all the time have to say, don't be afraid. And then they normally go on to what they're saying. But the angel here says something interesting. He says, don't be afraid. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. And he's speaking directly here to a fear in Joseph's heart. He's not saying, don't be afraid of me. I bring you good news. He's saying, I know the fear of your heart. I know what's going on internally. I know the stuff that you've not told anybody else. I know how you're turning this over and you can't work out what to do for the right thing. I know you're afraid to do that, but don't fear. Take Mary as your wife. He speaks directly to the thoughts of Joseph's heart. And I find that comforting because it means God sees. 
God knows, God cares, and he's speaking right to where Joseph's at. And then he goes on to say that, you know, that she's going to bear a son and you'll call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And if we were going to, if we were going to distill all of Matthew, the whole book, into one little line, one little catchphrase, this would be it. We could sum the whole thing up by this. His name will be Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's the point of the book. And from a Westerner, we're like, lovely. I am a people um, and I sin. And so good news for me, Jesus is going to save me from my sins because we see things through an individualistic mindset because we're just Western. That's how we're wired to do it. But no Jewish person would have heard it that way. No Jewish person would have thought, great, great news for me. They all would have heard great news for us. Wow, he'll save us as a people. He will save us from our collective sin. It's a corporate promise. And that's really important because they've got corporate judgment going on. They've got corporate desperation. They've got corporate hope. They've got corporate longing as a people group. They are waiting for their Messiah together. As a nation together, they've experienced 400 years of silence. The last news that they had as a nation given to them was, you're all in sin, which they were. They were told, you've all forsaken the law of God. You've, you've walked away from the covenant. And so because of that, there's now going to be judgment on you. That's the last news that they heard. And they've been waiting for 400 years. Think about what that does. Generation after generation after generation after generation, just keeping going on, waiting for a deliverer, waiting for a new Moses to come and lead them out of their spiritual Egypt that they're in, waiting to be delivered from now Roman oppressors. They're not under Egyptian oppressors now. Now they're under Roman oppressors who keep them downtrodden in their own land. And they're out of covenant with the Lord because they've forsaken the covenant. And there's no way to get them back to that. And so they're waiting with this anticipation. And Matthew says, it's Jesus. This is the person you've been waiting for. 400 years of silence, 400 years of desperation and longing and not knowing what to do and how to get back as a people together. And he says, your answer is Jesus. Verse 22 tells us, this kind of is Matthew's little commentary on what's going on. And he says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. And again, Matthew's trying to illustrate, we were told about this. We've been waiting for this. Our prophets wrote about this. Here's the evidence for this. Here's the receipts in scripture. Here's the, the, the way to help you understand. Listen, we've, he's the one that we've been waiting for. It doesn't look like you thought. It hasn't come how you thought. It isn't going to play out like you think it's going to play out. But this is who we've been waiting for. Quite stunning. Chapter 2, which I encourage you to go read this week. We're not going to read that this morning. But that goes on in the story of the details of the wise men and how they came. And then Herod and the immediate threat to Jesus' life. Because Herod finds out there's a new king. That's not good. And so he then wants to kill all the baby boys just as a blanket. Let's sort this problem out and do that. And then 
we get two more angelic visitations to Joseph to tell them you need to go flee to Egypt to keep Jesus safe. And then he tells them when to come back and to go settle in Nazareth. And Matthew's adding all these details in in chapter 2 because he wants his listeners and his readers to see this is a new Moses. Jesus is the Moses you've been waiting for. Jesus is the person that you have been looking and waiting for. There's all these parallels. Moses and Jesus, two baby boys, born in a nation that was oppressed. Born under an edict of an evil king and an evil pharaoh to kill every other baby boy that was around at the time. Mass infanticide committed at the time of their birth in an effort to snuff out a deliverer's life. Divine intervention in both accounts for Jesus and Moses. Both baby boys had divine intervention to preserve their life. And then Jesus has this mirroring moment where he comes out of Egypt. There's a reason why he had to escape to Egypt to then come out of Egypt. Because the threads are all being pulled together to help every Jewish person see, this is who you've been waiting for. It doesn't look like you thought. It's not on your bingo card. It's not how you thought it would be. But let me show you, this is the same person that you've been waiting for. It's the new Moses. It's the fulfillment of what you've been waiting for. And if you go back and read Matthew and read Luke, the, the Christmas accounts, if you go and read it with that, here's what you'll see. It's really interesting. That... Into 400 years of silence, nothing from heaven, judgment, the whole nation in judgment, things terrible. And then, bam, we get angels like immediately on the scene. And not just any angel, an angel Gabriel that we've only seen once in Daniel. And he pops up and he starts doing pregnancy announcements and pregnancy reveals. And he's like, we're going to have a baby and it's great. And then he starts talking to other people like um, um, Elizabeth and Zachariah and it's just this amazing thing that happens. Then we get Mary and Joseph, and they're in the right lineage, and they're the right kind of um, young people to be able to do this because of the house that they live in. But they are definitely not expecting, hello, you're going to have a baby, and you're going to have to raise the Son of God. That's really big news. It's pretty daunting when you become a parent at the best of times. Never mind, you have to keep the Savior of the world alive and you need in in Israel in you know first century that's just you know diphtheria typhoid cholera like no water sanitation I'm like oh it's just you can't sterilize bottles like there's just no nappies no wipes and you have to keep this child alive so that he can do what he's on the planet to do it's it's pretty intense there's a census happening so the whole region is in massive upheaval this mass migration of people around all the movement everything that's normal is now not normal in this story Lots of miracle babies being born. John is born through a miracle. And the same family, in the same family announced by angels. Imagine, well, they wouldn't gather for Christmas because we haven't had that yet. But imagine the family, you know, things happening. They're like, angel came. And, you know, Zachariah can't talk. And it's just everything's going on. We get wise men in the story. Completely unacceptable in this story. 
from an entirely different country, unacceptable customs, not acceptable in the law at all. And they come and they, they follow stars and they bring gifts, which would have been way overkill for the baby shower. And like lots of things that were happening for them to be included, puzzling, surprising, very left field. Shepherds hear the news first. That's unexpected, but it's a nice little nod. It's a really nice nod because salvation history comes through in the Israelite story through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Rachel, Moses, Aaron, David. All shepherds all have these significant accounts. So this lovely little nod and detail that the lowest of people that have been raised to the highest status in the nation of Israel and they get to hear the news first. It's beautiful that. Jesus born in a manger. If we're going to, on our Christmas bingo, where is the king of the universe going to be born? Nobody's got manger on that. One's got at least, you know, nice, comfy, safe, warm bed. Nobody had manger. And we've got stars appearing and announcing the birth of Jesus. The heavens opening with whole hosts. I don't even know what a host of angels would look like. Very impressive. If one angel shows up and says, don't be afraid, the poor shepherds who had heaven open and a host of angels, how many that is, and said, good news, probably very melodically. But them, and then, and then in Luke, everybody's prophesying. Mary prophesies, um, Elizabeth prophesies, Simeon prophesies, Anna prophesies. Everybody's like prophesying after 400 years of silence. It's so unusual it's so surprising. It's so unexpected. It's so left field. It's so puzzling. It's so, what on earth is going on here? Nobody in Israel has this on their bingo card for how the Messiah, how the Messiah and the Savior and the Deliverer will come. And we should be surprised as we read it. It should be not what we expect. It should be left field, intriguing. And yet, what Matthew and Luke do is they write this absolute page turner where everybody listening to it for the first time and reading it for the first time would have been like, this is incredible. What on earth is going on? We're, like, we're not even at the end of chapter one of the story. And, and it's been like an absolute white knuckle ride to get to the point where it's like, and Jesus is born. It's so unusual and inspiring and exciting and it's supposed to leave us a little bit uncomfortable of how is this all going to turn out if this is Jesus's birth what will his life be like what will he do where will he go how will he, how will he show us that he really is the son of God how will he actually save us all from our sins how on earth will it end so, as we come to a close today, I want to ask you a couple of questions and maybe a couple of prompts as you come to it afresh, I hope, this week as you read these two accounts. And maybe you think, well, how does this sit for me? Because I'm fairly sure, I may be wrong, but I'm fairly sure most of us aren't going to have an angelic visitation this week. Most of us are not going to be told that we're carrying the Son of God. Most of us are not going to have these experiences. So what does this mean for us this week? How do we apply this? And here's some questions to ask. First is this, is there a situation in your life that like Joseph, you have the right to respond to with judgment? You've got the right, you've got the legal right, you've got the 
emotional right, you've got the moral authority maybe to respond to it. But could you surprise that person this Christmas time and respond instead with a grace and mercy that flows from the Holy Spirit's work in your life as a reflection of the grace and mercy shown to you in Jesus? Could the band join me, please? Joseph didn't even have... Joseph wasn't a Christian. Joseph didn't have the Holy Spirit. Joseph didn't have the work of the Holy Spirit in his life to bring about grace and mercy in the same way that we do. And yet he responded with stunning grace, stunning mercy, when he could have responded in judgment. Is there something in your life that you could change how you respond? Like Joseph, is there a fear in your heart that maybe you've not actually shared with another soul, but you've been turning it over in your mind? As you've gone to sleep, it's just been there. And you're like, I don't know what to do about this. I don't know how this situation is going to work out. I can't see the way through. I don't know what the best thing to do is. It's just there in your mind. Could you hear the voice of heaven speaking to you today saying, do not fear. Don't be afraid. Don't live in a future of a scenario that hasn't got God in it. Know that God goes ahead of any scenario and is there guiding you through helping you. Let me remind you this morning that Jesus sees, Jesus knows, and he's working all things for your good. Could you, could you choose to live in that truth this Christmas time? And would you stand with me? And as we finish, as we come to the close of this year, if you close your eyes, And if you were to look at the bingo card of your life and what your year has been, I'm guessing there's been some inclusions on your bingo card that were very left field for you, made you feel surprised, some things that maybe you weren't expecting, some things that have been left field for you, some things that have made you feel intrigued or puzzled, let down maybe, confused. At the start of the year, you never would have guessed that they would have been in your life, but here they are. And instead of experiencing that in a negative way, could you finish up this year and this Christmas with anticipation an expectation that God really delights in his working his plan together for the good of those who love him through unlikely people in unlikely places, using unlikely circumstances, things that nobody would think would work. And yet God's so skilled at taking that and bringing glory to his name and bringing strength and character to us and bringing us to a place where we we love him deeper and we know him more. I wonder this morning, could you just have just a moment with Jesus and say, well, I didn't ask for this this year, whatever that thing is. But thank you for trusting that me and you can walk through it together. Thank you for giving me the strength to lean on you. 
Thank you for giving me the grace that I need each day. Thank you for giving me the faith that I need to walk this out well. Thank you for bringing me hope in the person of Jesus. That means that there's no circumstance that's beyond your touch. And thank you for your love that sustains me through all seasons, all walks, all circumstances, all problems, all mountains, all valleys, that we're not alone this morning, that it's Emmanuel, God with us. I just want to give you opportunity, if you're in the room this morning and you've never said yes to Jesus, Maybe you've never heard the Christmas account in this way before. Maybe you didn't know that it was for you that Jesus could come. That it was because of you that he lived a sinless life. That it was because of you that he died the death that he did upon a cross. So that you could be in relationship with him. If that's you this morning and you want to respond to Jesus, you want to say, I may not have it all figured out. I may not have all my answers. I may not know what it's going to look like. Things may be surprising and unexpected and difficult and puzzling. But I'm just going to take that first step of faith and say, Jesus, I want to know you. If that's you this morning, could you be really brave and lift up your hand as I look around and I'll pray for you. We always want to give an opportunity at every service. We don't want to miss it if this is your Sunday to say yes to Jesus. Okay, well, Father, we thank you for every person in this room. God, we thank you that while things may not have been on our bingo card of this year, but Jesus, you knew, you see, and you walk us through it all. Help us to live this morning with great expectation and anticipation of the joy that you can bring through any circumstance. In Jesus' name, amen.